Hello and welcome to the Fixing Healthcare podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Jeremy Kaur. I'm also host of the popular New Books in Medicine podcast and CEO of Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert was the CEO of the Permanente Group, the nation's largest physician group. He is currently a Forbes contributor, a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business, and author of the best-selling book, Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the second episode of Season 5. This season is focused on the culture of medicine and how it both supports doctors and nurses in providing superb medical care in the most difficult of circumstances, such as during the current coronavirus pandemic, but also how it leads them to inflict harm on themselves and their patients. In this episode, we explore the difficult topic of racism in American healthcare. If you want more information on the culture of healthcare, you can find links to articles and podcasts on a variety of culturally related topics on my website, robertpearlmd.com. Our guest today is Dr. Amanda Calhoun. She's a resident at the Yale School of Medicine in Adult and Child Psychiatry. She serves as co-president of the Psychiatry Residents Association, assistant editor at the Connecticut Psychiatric Society Newsletter, and associate editor of the American Journal of Psychiatry Residents Journal. She was the keynote speaker at Yale's White Coats for Black Lives event, where she captivated the hearts and minds of the hundreds of physicians participating. She believes that all doctors should be activists in battling racism in healthcare, and that social justice needs to be integrated with medical education. We wanted a guest on this important topic who would be unafraid to tell the truth. We can't imagine anyone better able to do that than Dr. Calhoun. Welcome, Dr. Calhoun. This season focuses on the culture of medicine. Let me begin, therefore, by asking you, as physicians, we tell ourselves that we treat every patient the same. Is it true? Oh, definitely not. Tell me more about it. Even before getting into racism and race, you know, I'm a child psychiatrist, um, or, you know, a child psychiatry resident, and, and, and we know, you know, in psychiatry about this concept of transference and countertransference that happens between, you know, the physician and the patient, which is basically that the patient, as well as you from the physician's perspective, often attribute certain feelings, experiences, to patients that remind you of experiences in your life or a person in your life. And those feelings could be positive or negative. And so it's something that happens in the, in the patient-physician relationship. And you will find that every physician has this, where a certain patient reminds them of their cousin. So they find that they are treating that patient in a more, I don't know, um, affectionate way because it reminds them of their little cousin. And so we know that, you know, as human beings, physicians are just people and they, and they don't treat all patients the same. And when we start talking about racism, you know, the current 
literature and data, if, because I know, you know, physicians, we love data, we're scientists um, as well, shows that there's differential treatment based on race and, and, and patients. That's documented not only in the scientific evidence, but also, you know, if you just talk to patients of color and ask them about their experience in the medical system, they will tell you that they have experienced doctors that don't treat them the same way that they treat their white patients. What's some of the data that you've come across in your research? So, um, you know, there's tons of studies. The ones that I usually use in my talks are sort of the ones that were aha moments for me, some of them being the data surrounding pain and the fact that we know that Black patients are undertreated for their pain compared to white patients, meaning that if a Black patient comes into um, the clinic or into the emergency department, and a white patient comes into the clinic or the emergency department with similar pain symptoms or presentation, we find that the white patients are more likely to be worked up more, they receive more testing, and also studies have come out that have shown that minority patients in general are less likely to be treated with empathy and understanding compared to white patients. You know, for me as a black woman, one of the studies that really touched me was, you know, looking at the rising maternal mortality in black women due to preventable childbirth complications. And the fact that, you know, for the longest time, people were citing poverty and lack of education as the reason behind these racial disparities. However, recent studies have come out that have shown that college graduate Black women are more likely to die due to preventable childbirth complications than white women who have never completed high school. And so that argument that it's just poverty, it's just education, you know, falls to the wayside when you still see that these disparities exist. And add to that, you know, when you think about why all these studies that on stress and allostatic load and the fact that they have looked at many different indicators in stress and stress and Black people and found that they're higher than white people due to just chronic racism and, and being a Black person in this country. And so I think those are some of the studies. And I think I'm glad that more and more studies are citing what I and many Black Americans already knew, but it's helpful in academic discussion so that doctors can become aware of it. It's my understanding that when uh, black women are cared for by black physicians and they're giving birth that the mortality disparity disappears. Have you come across any of that data? And if so, what's your interpretation? Yeah, I have. And actually, they also a recent study came out as well in the on the pediatric side um, that, you know, a lot of my pediatrics colleagues were freaking out because it showed that black children, black infants actually were more were three times more likely to die when treated by white physicians. So we see that not only in in newborns, but in mothers as well. And I definitely think that having a black physician is most definitely protective. And I think it's protective not necessarily just because the physician is black, but because a black physician understands the fact that black women are often undervalued or thought to be in less pain than they really are. And I think that the black physicians I've had and my, and my black colleagues, you know, we're aware of this data because we've seen and we've had our own family members be turned away from the emergency department when they were really sick and not get further work up that we know that our white colleagues have gotten and our white colleagues' family members have gotten. And so I think Black physicians are very aware of this in their practices. And I think that Black physicians 
view black people as valuable, honestly, and tend to be people that when we say we're in pain or when we say something doesn't feel right, they, instead of turning us away and saying, you'll be fine, you know, they take it very seriously. And so I most definitely think having a black physician is protective because of that. As you know, in COVID-19, African-American patients are three times as likely to die, at least, than white patients. What was interesting to me was a study that I saw early in the pandemic when the number of testing kits were very restricted, that two patients coming in, a black patient and a white patient, with the same symptoms, same degree of fever, that the white patient was far more likely to get a test than the black patient. How do you explain this? I mean, I would just explain that that's just racism. I mean, I think I think that people need to, when I say people, I mean, we're talking physician to physician here. I think physicians just need to call it what it is and understand that racism is a risk factor, just like poverty is a risk factor, just like there are other risk factors. And that I just think in this country, it is very baked into the system and into the mindsets of people, specifically non-Black people, to not value the complaints or concerns of Black people to the same extent as white people. And, you know, that happened in COVID, but, you know, that's been cited in, in other studies as well, that Black patients are less likely to get further testing and get testing uh, for the same symptoms. And so it goes back to providers and physicians not valuing our pain and not treating us the same as white patients. It's sad and it's upsetting, but when you learn about the history of the medical system in America, so I often pull in historical data, um, and I don't pretend to be a historian, but I think it's important to understand, you know, the history of the American medical system and the fact that it from the beginning when you know African slaves were brought to this country has been a dehumanizing experience for black Americans. And we have seen that white doctors have not treated their black patients the same as their white patients. And so those mindsets persist. And an example of that is the fact that a recent 2015 survey showed that white residents and medical students still felt that black people felt less pain, which is wild to me because black is a race. It's not biological, right? It's a social construct that was made up and they still think that black people feel less pain. And then when you bring in the history of it, you start learning about, you know, J. Marion Sims, the father of gynecology and the fact that he experimented on African slaves without anesthesia to perfect his vesicle vaginal fistula repair and then would take those perfected procedures and perform them on white women with anesthesia. And so you can see how this historical belief that black people felt less pain has persisted and continues to persist today. And I very much think that it's alive and well in physicians' minds today. And I think that plays into why they don't work us up more because they feel that black patients' pain is not something to be concerned about or not something to be alarming. How much of this racism is conscious and how much of it is unconscious? You know, that's a really good question. I'm so glad you bring that up. I steer away from those conversations because, you know, I'm skeptical about how productive they are. That's why I specifically don't use the term unconscious bias. I don't use the term implicit bias 
because I think it's a placating term, you know, for multiple reasons. For one, we've done implicit bias trainings, and I'm going to answer your question, but I just wanted to give this background with it. But, you know, we've been doing implicit bias and, and framing this as implicit bias for over a decade now, and the, the, the evidence is not really clear about, you know, whether these implicit bias trainings are really showing reduced racist behaviors and or thoughts or beliefs. And I think part of that, you know, so I think it's multiple things. I have no idea what the percentage of people who are racist consciously and unconsciously are. And I don't think we'll ever know unless we get to a point where we can read people's minds, because I don't think if a person is a consciously racist person with racist beliefs, they're going to admit that because, well, some people would, but I think in, in, if we're talking physicians and you're in a, you know, you're in a medical facility, I don't think that people are going to admit that they're racist. Um, and so for me, I'm much more concerned about the impact of their behavior than their intentions. And so I really don't talk to people about their racism being unconscious or conscious. I sort of leave that to my white allies because that's a very frustrating conversation for me because then it ends up me being me sort of helping them to feel better about their racist behavior and making them feel like it was unconscious and we're getting into, are you a good person and all of that. I found it much more productive to focus on, okay, well, regardless of your intention, regardless of whether you have, you know, conscious racist beliefs that you grew up with or that you learned, or it was unconscious, what impact does it have on the patient? And are we seeing that black patients are having the same health outcomes as white patients? even when they have equal access to care. And we're seeing that there are still differences. And when talking to patients, I'm still having patients pull me aside and say, I don't feel like I'm being listened to. I don't feel like I'm being heard. I don't feel like I'm being treated the same as white patients. And so for me, I'm much more interested in that and rectifying that than figuring out whether the people who have racist behaviors are doing it consciously or unconsciously. I hope it's unconscious because I think if it's unconscious, then maybe there's hope for changing it. But I'm more interested in helping people to unlearn these pervasive stereotypes and to sort of really evaluate their behavior when taking care of patients and really self-check and make sure that they're working up patients adequately and listening to their concerns and thinking about the impact that our behavior has on our patients, regardless of what our intentions were. I ask from the positive standpoint of people who do want to change, let's just say you're a, a white uh, obstetrician gynecologist and you're caring for a diverse group of patients, some of whom are African-American, and you recognize that there's a higher mortality rate in general. Maybe you've looked at your own statistics, maybe you haven't. Most Obstetrician gynecologists obviously don't have a whole lot of maternal deaths, which is very fortunate, but you want to do everything you can in your power to minimize that possibility. How would you advise them to go ahead? Oh my gosh, that would be lovely. When I gave my speech for the White Coats for Black Lives demonstration that we did in front of Yale um, Sterling School of Medicine, you know, I actually had some OB-GYN physicians that came up to me and asked the same question. And I love to hear that because there's so much that, that you can do if you're trying to be aware of it. One thing that you can do is work up your Black patients. Like if I were in their shoes or I was advising them or I was a consultant, I would say, 
make sure that your black female patient has a blood pressure cuff at home. You know, make sure that if they're complaining about a headache or they're complaining about symptoms that could go either way, you have them come in. So practice really being conservative and making sure that you're true, that you're working up, you know, their symptoms and really checking them would be one thing that I think would make a world of difference. Because when we look at a lot of these, you know, very scary stories of black women dying, their families are citing the fact that they called their physicians and had, you know, headaches and had other concerns and their physicians told them, you know, you'll be fine. Don't worry about it. And so I think instead of doing that, bring the black woman in and, and work her up and examine her. And then the second thing is when it gets time for the birth. And I think, you know, because OB-GYNs, they don't always, some of them do, don't always, um, aren't always present at all of their patients' deliveries. The problem that can happen is, you know, it may not be you that delivers the baby, it may be your colleague. So making sure that your colleague is very much aware of these statistics, making sure that you're, you know, you have some sort of check and balance system where, you know, if something's going wrong, hopefully the patient is able to contact you or there's some sort of mechanism for you to be alerted. Also looking at the rest of your staff, I like to blame physicians because I am one. So I feel like it's safe for me to talk about my own, but a lot of this is also racism in nursing staff. You know, it's racism in nurses not even bringing the patient's complaints to the physician. And so I think really making sure there's a mechanism and process to make sure your patients are being heard. And if the nurse is not listening to them, giving them a mechanism to be able to contact someone else would be life-changing. So your dad is also a psychiatrist and also trained at Yale, so you're following in his footsteps. Uh, so you've been very well aware of physician culture, I'll say for your whole life growing up in it and now practicing in it. How do you think it's changed over the past uh, few decades? I think it's interesting, you know, in talking to my dad about things, I think in some ways it's more progressive and in some ways it's, it's less progressive. I think back when my dad went to medical school, there were actually more black men in the medical field than there are now. But then on the other hand, my dad is like really happy that I'm in a program that's actually not even a program, but even also just a location where people, you know, such as yourself, but also my attendings and different people are really supporting this work I'm doing in anti-racism. And I feel like a lot of these discussions now that we're having about racism and accountability for racism weren't even had, you know, years ago. And so I think in some ways we're progressing, but in some ways it is definitely like we're seeing a little bit less diversity as well in the physician population. So I think it kind of goes both ways. As you're pointing out, there is a underrepresentation of African-American physicians in the total physician population. Why is that? And what can we do about it? Well, I think it all goes back to racism. If we're looking at poverty and the fact that, you know, the average, you know, median family income for black families is a lot lower than that of white families. You, you really can't talk about poverty without talking about the economic oppression of black people in America. And the fact that black people on average do not have the same wealth as white people and the same educational status. And I think all of that plays into the pipeline of who becomes physicians, but that is the result of an intentional racist system of over 400 years 
intentionally disadvantaging the black population. And so we can't expect for black people to be on the same footing as white people economically when we've been oppressed due to a racist system. As far as moving forward, I think one of the big things we can do is acknowledge that and really work to dismantle the system by actually, you know, providing real outreach with actually putting money into funding so that more Black people can become physicians, with actually putting more into funding and, and I think rewarding people who want to work in minoritized communities. Um, I think there's a lot of room for helping with the barrier of the fact that medical school is just so expensive and you know, is really becoming more and more expensive. And so I think it's going to be harder and harder, not just for Black people, but also people who don't have a certain amount of wealth to be able to become physicians. And I think that's a real loss because we need people from all walks of life to become physicians. I mean, we don't want everyone who's a physician to come from a wealthy, affluent family. That's not helpful because then we need the perspective of physicians who have grown up in families of all different races and socioeconomic statuses. And I think the fact that it's so overwhelmingly expensive to go to medical school and is so, it's such a long road, you really need a lot of economic support and support in general to be able to be encouraged. You're both African-American and a woman. How does racism and sexism, uh, how are they similar in uh, medicine and how are they different? Oh, I'm so glad you asked that. I, I'm only speaking for me, so I, I would hate, I'm not at all trying to extrapolate my experience to all women, but I would say that the sexism I experience pales in comparison to the racism I experience. I mean, it's not even on the same level. White women are benefiting far more from societal advantages than Black women. That's just a fact. White women are paid more in the same jobs than Black women are. There are more white women represented in psychiatry, for example, than Black women by far. And so I don't want to minimize sexism. Of course, sexism is terrible, and there's a lot you know, that needs to be done on that front. But I do not think the sexism that I experience is nearly as damaging as the racism. I mean, the sexism is like a patient tells me that I'm like looking good today, which is like, okay, thanks. Uh, appreciate it. I keep it moving. And, you know, but I'm not saying that's appropriate, but that's a compliment, even though it's an unwanted compliment. The racism is my Black child patient being called the N-word and having a white stable patient go up and scream the N-word in his face 10 times and nobody on the unit do anything about it except for me, who goes back and tells that patient, are you okay? How can I protect you? So the sexism I experience is just, I really even think about the sexism piece. I know you've written, I'll say curriculum for medical students and I'm gonna guess residents and maybe others. Can you tell me a little bit about what you've written and what you recommend? Yeah, so I kind of just started writing stuff because I've been venting to my parents a lot. My mom is a pharmacist also, by the way, so she's like very medically oriented as well. But I was just kind of venting to them about the way that people were framing these conversations and I wanted to do it differently. <laughs> so I, you know, it started with me writing a piece called I Don't Want to Know More that I actually put in the Yale Pediatrics blog at Yale. And it was just like a, a very simple piece about the fact that I didn't want to know more than my attendings about racism and the way that it affects our patients. And the fact that I feel like 
I was in the position of having to search for ways to learn about the disparities, information and the research and the mental and physical effects of racism and, and all of that. And so anyway, from there, you know, I actually ended up um, getting contacted by a curriculum company that does training modules for physicians. And I thought, oh, this will be good to sort of put all my thoughts and the things that I've been talking about into a module. And so I actually created some content that I still have that essentially goes through the definitions of racism and anti-racism, which I, you know, model after um, Dr. Kendi's work, How to Be an Anti-Racist, and goes through the different types of racism and goes through the reasons why I don't like the term implicit bias, which I kind of mentioned. I want to focus on the people who are targeted and focus on the impact. And so it goes through all of that. It also brings in the history. So kind of what I mentioned about the father of gynecology and the fact that we learn about the positives, but we don't learn about the fact that he experimented on, on Black people and the fact that this silencing of these facts paints a picture that's not true and how if we were to understand, you know, these racist beliefs historically, it helps us understand how they're still present today. And so the curriculum kind of takes you through the history and then um, completes by, you know, having a series of cases. And so they asked me to put together some cases in which would demonstrate to different physicians of different specialties. So I did one for OBGYN, I've done one for pediatrics, I've done some for family medicine, internal medicine, um, how racism would play out in patient outcomes and then sort of modeling for the people doing the training or the curriculum, how that interaction could have gone better. So for the listeners who wanted the chance to take one of your courses, how do you define racism? So, when I define racism, there are a couple of different definitions um, that people use. And so there are many different forms of racism. And the most basic way that I like to define it is essentially ascribing a set of behaviors, actions, thoughts to a particular race. And then when you look at racism, another definition of it can be what people talk about when they talk about institutional racism. But I think people get confused because it depends on what definition you're going off of. And that gets into the whole thing of, you know, can a minority be racist and all of that. And so I stick with a very simple definition, which is basically having certain negative thoughts or ascribing certain negative thoughts, behaviors, actions to a particular group based on the color of their skin. And then anybody can be racist, yes, but certain groups in this country, um, white people have institutional power. So their racism becomes institutional racism because they have institutional power. And institutional racism is really when you, when you start to have policies and you know, behaviors and procedures that advantage one race over another um, that are sort of baked into the institutional system. And so an example I like to give of institutionalized racism is if your hospital, like you're on a unit at a hospital and you're rounding on patients. And let's say you have a Spanish speaking patient and you don't have time to call an interpreter that day. You say you don't have time. So you decide that you're going to come by with an interpreter later on in the day and you just basically give them very basic information, even though they can't really speak Spanish. And that becomes a practice that's acceptable on that unit and in that institution. That's an example of institutionalized racism because it's a behavior that's become acceptable and sort of, you know, there's no policy against it. You're allowed to do it. You're allowed to update them later, but it actually is resulting in 
and unequal care, unequal treatment. Um, and you really are advantaging patients who can speak English. And so I think that that's an example of, you know, institutionalized racism against Spanish speaking patients. How would you apply it to black patients? So if I would apply it to black patients, you would look at, I mean, institutionalized racism, honestly, is really where I think the undervaluing of pain comes from, honestly. And the fact that, you know, you may have people that don't individually feel that they're racist, but you hear about cases where there have been multiple black patients who have been turned away from the emergency department or haven't gotten, you know, further workup or testing for their symptoms. And the patient's been seen by the resident, the social worker seen them, you know, an attending seen them. And this is behavior that's just been tolerated. And even honestly, racist jokes, sadly to say, have become institutionalized in the sense that I've been on units where it's common to make jokes about a patient's hair texture. It's okay to joke and say that a black patient wants to join a gang, to joke and say a patient is ghetto. To me, that's institutionalized racism too, because if you would go to the individual person, they would say that they aren't racist, but that's really, you know, almost a racist institutionalized culture that's been baked into the system. And then people sort of start to believe that it's okay. And it's very insidious. I'm going to guess that for most listeners who are not in medicine, they're going to be very appalled at the inappropriate jokes you mentioned. And they're going to want to know, how often does this happen? Is this a once a year, once an entire medical school experience? Or is this more frequent? What's been your observation? Oh my gosh. You know, I went to medical school in a different place than I met residency. And I will tell you, the program that I came from was even worse as far as, yes, I will say that it's very frequent and location dependent. And so that sort of gets into sort of a racist culture and the fact that, yeah, I've definitely been on multiple units where it was common to make racist jokes about patients and it happened frequently. And, you know, I, I said, how would you feel if you walked by a group of doctors taking care of your family member and they were joking and laughing about how your family member's natural hair looked wild and crazy. I said, how would you, how would you feel about that? <laughs> and it was really funny because I said that and the nurse who was making the racist joke just was like, oh. And later, you know, I, I really, you know, give kudos to the attending. The attending pulled her aside and said, you know, that was really inappropriate. But it was me who, he wasn't going to say anything if it, were, if it wasn't for me. And so racism is extremely pervasive amongst physicians. And there are some physicians who I think are extremely good at dispelling the racism and saying, no, we're not going to talk about our patients like this. And I think there are some physicians who very much think it's okay to make racist jokes about patients. Um, it also comes up oftentimes when our patients, especially, you know, a lot of my black patients have concerns about whether they trust what the attending is saying, you know, whether doctors are going to be experimenting on them. And I've had colleagues that have said, that's so funny. Like, that's ridiculous. Why would we experiment on them? And I said, are you aware of Henrietta Lacks the Havasupai tribe lawsuit 
Tuskegee, and a number of other studies that have shown that actually medicine has a history of experimenting on people, especially Black people and other people of color. And they kind of looked at me. But I think it's like, it's just ignorance and racism all combined. And, and it goes back to why we need a diverse physician population, because I truly think if we have representation of physicians from all walks of life, and all you know, racial backgrounds, religious backgrounds, et cetera, those insensitive, racist, homophobic, whatever jokes are not tolerated. And unfortunately, you know, I wish that we didn't have to have people from that background in order for them to feel invested in the patient. But what I've seen is that sometimes it happens where if you have a very homogenous group of people taking care of a patient and the patient is of a different background, there are a lot of insensitive comments said. And some of them are said behind closed doors. Some of them are said in front of the patient. And the patient doesn't always feel empowered to speak up because that's your doctor. Whether you trust your doctor or not, they're in charge of your health. And so even if a doctor says something very insensitive towards you and racist, you may or may not feel empowered to really, to really report them. Some patients do, but you know, a lot of patients don't. And so that's one of the reasons why I'm like very serious about this because I feel like I, I really see my role as being a protector of patients because they may not feel empowered to be able to speak up. And so I feel like if I speak up, then I still could potentially be targeted as a trainee, but it's better than the patient being targeted or being continued to be targeted. So yeah, I think people should be appalled to hear that, that happens in the medical system. And that's why I tell patients and people going into the medical system that they should most definitely advocate for themselves. They should ask questions. They should challenge me. You know, if I have patients that ask me lots of questions, sometimes they'll apologize. And I always say, nope, nope, don't apologize. Please do hold me accountable for my decisions. Please do question me if you feel like my decisions are unfair. I want to know because I want to make sure that I'm treating all of my patients equitably. So if you were to explain to, say, for example, a patient or someone who maybe, you know, like me from Iowa, who maybe doesn't have as much exposure to a lot of this, could you kind of explain the difference between anti-racism and just plain, you know, not being racist? Yeah, so not racist is really to me like a cop out because it's just sort of like a statement. You're just not racist when I really think that there's no in between. I have to give Dr. Kendi the, the, the credit for this, but I really like the way that he conceptualizes it in that you're either actively working against racism and actively supporting policies and behaviors that are working to rectify a racist system or you are upholding a racist system. And so I like thinking about it that way because it does not give anybody an out and allow anybody to just be silent. Because if you're just silent, that's not anti-racist, that's racist. And so I really like that conceptualization of it's one or the other and that to be anti-racist requires that consistent self-check and self-work to make sure that you are not upholding policies or behaviors or actions that are going to disadvantage one race compared to another. As we said, COVID-19 disproportionately affects African-Americans negatively. COVID-19 
vaccine hopefully will be available sometime in the future. Given the history of racism, how can we protect our black patients from this disease once the vaccine is available? I really think that it's on us, meaning the medical system, to rebuild that trust. And I think that, that the medical system has a history and currently does not treat patients equally. And so, you know, when this vaccine comes out, it's going to be very interesting. You know, trying a new vaccine requires trust. And I think that that trust has been eroded and really honestly eroded and never really was truly earned in the black community. And so I think one of the biggest things that we can do is, and as you know, the medical system is really work on rebuilding that trust with the black community. And I think part of that is in naming racism and naming unequal treatment and naming the fact that this happens and that we're working on rectifying it as opposed to this thing where it's like, let's let us protect the medical system and pretend like we're perfect at all costs. Like we're not perfect, we're people. I think acknowledging that and really talking to our patients and taking the extra time to talk to our patients, especially our black patients. And, and when this vaccine becomes available, talking to them if they have concerns about the vaccine, talking to them about how they're feeling about the fact that so many black communities have been devastated by COVID. I mean, there were so many conversations about reopening schools and you know the different systems. And I was asked to write an article for the American Academy of Pediatrics Council on School Health, which is a newsletter I really like writing for. And they asked me to write about what should teachers and the school system keep in mind with the reopening of schools and students in the context of COVID-19. And I looked through the rest of the newsletter and the majority of it was like, had no mention of the fact that Black children have been disproportionately impacted by this, meaning, you know, their families. And the fact that the recent article in the Washington Post came out that showed that close to one in three Black people know someone who died of COVID. And so these Black children are having to go back to school and also Hispanic children with more than likely family members, friends who have, who have died. And just that collective grief of grieving your community and your people is devastating. And so I think physicians really need to acknowledge that and check in with their Black patients and really try to rebuild trust. Um, and I think if we, we can rebuild trust and people can trust that, we're, that we want to take care of them, people will be more interested or open to getting vaccinated. And then also making sure that the vaccine is available and that we're not, you know, because for a while, COVID tests were only available in certain areas. And so really making sure that there's outreach to, to all communities, not just, you know, affluent white communities and making sure that everyone is getting educated about the vaccine and, you know, possible side effects and we're building that trust, but really going above and beyond to, to rebuild the trust of black communities. It cannot be equal treatment. It must be equitable treatment because the trust that we have to rebuild in the medical system and the black population is not the same as in the white population because the atrocities committed against black people are nowhere near the same as those committed against white patients. So I just think that people need to be very aware of that, meaning physicians and people in the medical system and really make that extra effort to earn the trust of the black population. I think one of the biggest aha moments for me, and as, as weird as it sounds, is 
one of my best friends and I were going to go grilling out at his house and he's an African-American man. And we went to the grocery store together to get stuff to grill out before this party. And this was back before the pandemic, but we went to the grocery store and we went through the line and I told him just to toss my receipt, you know, at the end, I didn't need it. And he, on the way back to his car, he was like, he was like, that's kind of an example of white privilege. I'm like, what do you mean? And he's like, as an African-American man, he's like, I can't throw my receipt away because then somebody's going to think I stole something. And I was like, wow, that like, I just, it's something I never even put the two and two together. But he's like, there's little examples of that, like everyday things that you don't take for or that you just take for granted that I have to double check and think about, you know? Yeah. And I think, you know, to that point in areas that are predominantly white, like the area that you're in, I think it's even more crucial for white allies actually to think of ways to support black people because there are less of us there to advocate for ourselves. And so it's powerful for predominantly white areas to be thinking about that and thinking about, luckily this was like you, it didn't become a bad situation, but sharing those narratives and, and, and helping to create a space where that, that's not the assumption and, and educating people in that. And, and also looking at, you know, the education that people give their kids and the schools that they, you know, depending on, you know, the person who's asking, like if they have kids, really thinking about, do you talk to your kids about racism and about race? or not. And because, you know, many Black children, we have these conversations from very young ages because we have to. I mean, I remember first being aware that I was treated differently because of the color of my skin when I was four. And I remember that moment. And, you know, I remember being stopped in my affluent neighborhood by a policeman because I was riding my brand new bike and them asking me, where did I get that bike? And me saying, oh, I live right there. You can go to my house and ask my dad. But we have these experiences at a very young age as Black children. And so it's imperative, I think, really, for, for, for white children to be exposed to racism and early. Because, you know, we know that children are not colorblind. And actually, you know, there's some really interesting studies, which I'm happy to send to you. But we know, you know, from a child development perspective, that by three months of age, children start to recognize race. And that you know around three or four children start to choose their playmates based on race and that around four or five kids can already start to tell you which races have which social statuses in this country and if you look at the work of you know doctors mammy and kenneth clark with the doll study which was recently replicated in 2010 with um cnn looked at they asked black and white children who was the intelligent child? You know, who's the child you want to be friends with? Who's the beautiful child? They had drawings of kids of all different skin tones and they found that all kids, sadly black children as well, um, had a strong, had a preference for whiteness being good and, and, and darker skin being bad. And especially the white kids though. The white kids had a very, very strong indication for saying white was good and black was bad. And so I think there's a lot of room for white people in white places to really start talking to their kids about this because kids are aware of it. They internalize things and they definitely treat people differently based on race. It's sad, but we know developmentally it happens. And so I think there's a lot of work in just educating white children about this and talking to them about race and their perceptions about race to make sure that they're developing into anti-racist individuals rather than racist individuals. And that's kind of why I like working with kids because, you know, kids will tell you the truth. 
point blank, you know, and they ask those kids, which, which one is bad? And they're like the black one. So kids will, if you make it seem like you really want to hear what they have to say, kids will tell you what they think. And while it's sad, it's also a very shapeable time. And so I think there's a lot of work for white allies to work with their kids and really work in their own communities. Now, and this is something like slightly, I guess, not off topic, but like, so say, for example, my, my son is biracial and we made, he's four and we made the, the decision to put him in a very diverse daycare, you know, and the daycare provider is black and his best friend from daycare is black and everything like that. And we've never really had the conversation around race with him. I don't know that he maybe really understands the difference because of how diverse the daycare that he goes to is, but what age do you think is appropriate to start addressing that with children at? You know, I think that you can start addressing it. I mean, I would say like from my limited experience, the child psychiatry trainee, I would honestly say, you know, as soon as the child is about to start school, probably around, honestly, ages probably about around three or four is when I would probably honestly start talking to kids about it because it's around the age of like four five you know that age range where they actually start internalizing those those racist stereotypes that they're sort of taking in from their surroundings which is which is all over and unfortunately while it's good that that you know if a child's in a diverse daycare has diverse friends and I think that's probably protective it doesn't shield them from the media and the fact that TV shows largely center white characters is good and, and, and black characters often have, you know, negative portrayals. It doesn't protect them from racist classmates and classmates making comments about the color of their skin. Um, doesn't protect them from teachers. You know, I mean, if they have like black teachers, that's probably helpful in the sense of black teachers have, have been shown to not have the same kind of differential treatment based on race. But I think it, it's very hard to shield children from internalizing racist beliefs. I think you have to actively talk to them about it. I think that they're aware of it at a, at a much earlier age than we would like to think, unfortunately. There's that stereotype that you often hear and it, about how, you know, with affirmative action and things like that, do you ever get the, the, the stereotype from patients that because you or, or some of your colleagues are African-American, that they might not be as qualified as the doctor next to them, that they got in easier because of their skin color, they were filling a quota or any of those types of stereotypes? Like, how, how, how do you address that? And have you dealt with that from, from patients, especially maybe older patients? Oh, of course. I definitely encounter um, that. I mean, that's a super like pervasive stereotype. I think the way that I handle it is showing them my like, it, it, so it, it kind of depends. I should say it, it depends on whether, I've done it a couple different ways. So sometimes, and actually oftentimes, I usually, when I introduce myself to people and people get to know me, they, they don't actually, they may not even know that I'm a physician and they certainly may not know that I'm a Yale physician or that I'm a Yale, you know, went to Yale undergrad. But oftentimes, if patients are being racist and sizing me up, I often do throw out those titles and also throw out the fact that, you know, I was like in the top of my class. And then I kind of keep it moving. Um, but most definitely, like that's a, that's a pervasive stereotype. To me, I know that there are people that are going to assume that. And it's kind of like, it does require a lot of internal confidence in yourself and knowing that that's not true and knowing that 
you know, you're just as intelligent, if not more intelligent than the white man next to you. And so that's kind of how I go through life. And that's been helpful, but it's definitely very damaging and very upsetting to constantly have your legitimacy be, be um, challenged. So it's, I, I definitely think that it's something that I really admire black people in general for everything that they've gone through, but even more, but in addition to that, I also really value black people that have gotten to positions of power in academic spaces in medicine, because it requires so much just resilience and grit and toughness. And I think it's a constant barrage of being undervalued. And you sort of always feel that you have to work harder than the white person next to you. But I'm, I'm sort of used to that. And again, that goes back to my parents coaching me. I mean, it's been from the beginning that I can say something and the white man or the white woman next to me can say it and they'll get the credit and I'll be ignored. And I know that, and that's my reality. And so for me, I've learned how to navigate that from a very young age, but it's definitely a reality that not everybody realizes or they don't realize it because they don't experience it. And I, and I haven't talked to them about it, but it's definitely something that, yeah, it's definitely been a part of my life from honestly, from as long as I can remember. Thank you, Dr. Calhoun, for being on the show today and for educating all of us about the endemic nature of racism in the medical culture and the destructive consequences it has. Robbie, what are your thoughts on what Dr. Calhoun said? Jeremy, I was impressed by the breadth of her expertise and the depth of personal experience. I'm sure for many of our listeners, the distinctions she made between not being a racist versus being an anti-racist, and the differentiation of race as a social, not biological construct, were very valuable. Most physicians don't recognize how deeply embedded racism is in medicine. It wasn't until 1964 that the AMA forced its state chapters to integrate and stop excluding black physicians from membership. In comparison, it was 1947, almost 20 years earlier that Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier in Major League Baseball. 1948, that the United States desegregated its armed forces. 1954, that the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in Brown v. Board of Education. And it would be another 44 years from 1964 to 2008 before the AMA finally apologized for its racist policies. When Henry Kaiser was building the first Kaiser Permanente Hospital in Oakland, the architects asked if he wanted the facility built like every other hospital in the area with separate buildings for the white and black patients. Mr. Kaiser asked whether the two races had different anatomy. He was told no. He asked if they had different blood types, and again, told no. Finally, he asked if they suffered from different diseases, and the answer for a third time was no. He then turned to the architects and asked, why would we have separate towers? Racism is embedded in the physician culture. It has been there for a long time. As Dr. Calhoun has pointed out, 
The time has come to expose it and eliminate it from the practice of medicine. Please subscribe to Fixing Healthcare on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast software. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. Visit our website at fixinghealthcarepodcast.com and follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Fixing HC Podcast. We hope you enjoy this podcast and we'll tell your friends and colleagues about it. If you want more information on these topics or others related to the culture of medicine, you can visit my website, robertperlmd.com. Together, we can make American healthcare once again the best in the world. Thank you for listening to Fixing Healthcare with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Have a great day.